Let's pray together as we get into the word. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we are able to come together as your body, as brothers and sisters, and to worship you, to praise your name, to lift our eyes to you. God, we live in a world where there are so many voices, so many forces pulling us away. And so I pray today, God, that you would draw us near. Bring us near to you. Lord, bring us to that place of consecration where we are surrendered to you and where you are able to work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray for that right now in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, So right before Easter, we wrapped up a little sermon series in the book of Acts, uh, where Paul was in Ephesus. We ended with him in Ephesus. He was there for a couple years, planting a church there, sharing the good news. And while he was there, it seems that he got a letter from a church that he had planted a few years before in the city of Corinth, in kind of the region of Greece. And this church was having some serious, serious issues, relationally especially, I don't know if you've maybe been part of a dysfunctional church before. Maybe you're like, well, I'm part of one right now. Uh, it could be. But, uh, but I promise you, whatever you've experienced was nothing like the church in Corinth. This church had so much going on. So just to name a few things, there were people in the church who were dividing over allegiance to various leaders. They were like, oh, I'm, I'm part of, I follow this guy. Other people were saying, I'm follow, I follow that guy. Um, there was a guy in the church who was sleeping with his stepmother, and nobody seemed that bothered by it. Maybe partly because a bunch of guys in the church were seeing prostitutes, and some of the women in the church were practicing what could be charitably called celibate marriage with their husbands. And then you had members of the church taking each other to court. You had the richer and stronger members of the church acting in ways that totally disregarded the well-being of the weaker and poorer members. I'm telling you, this church was a hot mess. And we can be thankful for that. Seriously, we can be thankful for that because they were such a hot mess. We get Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired letter to the church in Corinth, which means that when we go through various relational issues and and strained relationships in community, we have something that we can fall back on. We can go back to the the letters to the Corinthians and say, well, this is how Paul dealt with it. So that's what we're going to do in the next couple of months. We're going to start this series on, on relationships, and it's not a marriage series. So if you're single, you're like, oh man, not this. Uh, It's not going to be a marriage series. We are going to bring marriage into it at various points, but we're really talking about principles of relationships across the board. What does a kingdom of God mindset look like in all the relationships in our lives? And today we're going to start by talking about freedom. Uh, I've shared this with some of you individually, privately, but I don't think I've shared it publicly. Uh, But back in January, uh, with the the support of our our leadership team here at the bridge, I began a doctorate of ministry at Talbot School of Theology in Los Angeles. So what that means is that it's kind of a really ridiculous thing that I've attempted to do now, because alongside of pastoral ministry, which is more than full-time, significantly more, I'm also going to be doing this other thing, uh, doing a lot of reading and writing, Uh, It's all kind of on my own, submitting things online, but then I go down to California for two weeks every year in person, which will be happening in May, so next month. I wish it was in January. May, I feel like finally gonna get sun here. Anyways, whatever, that's fine. Uh, So I get to go down there, 
And uh, the particular track that I am in, enrolled in is called Engaging Mind and Culture. So the, a lot of the reading, my final project will all be about cultural engagement around certain issues. So this first year, we've been looking at some really, really light and fluffy things like uh, gender and sexuality, race and politics. So just kind of like easy things that everybody agrees on, right? Just to kind of, just kind of work our way in. And <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but as I've been reading and reflecting on, on these things, I've, I've realized that so much of our cultural mindset when it comes to these questions really comes back to an idea of freedom, a desire for a certain kind of freedom from any and all oppression. Uh, and this has been, this has kind of really come to the fore in recent years, but it's been, it's been a long time in the making. So for example, there was a group of influential men who started what was called the Frankfurt School a hundred years ago or so. And they developed this, this, uh, this worldview called critical theory, uh, which has given rise later on to critical race theory, which is often discussed these days. So these guys a hundred years ago said that they needed a new view of the world that would, that would cultivate autonomy, that would, that would um, bear a commitment to freedom. Uh, individuality was a huge word here, that, that people, that individuals would be able to express themselves however they wanted to without any external forces or authorities uh, kind of influencing them. And this was especially true of people who have been historically oppressed, that this worldview would enable those people to ex express themselves how they want without any undue influence from the outside. And when you hear that language, that might sound familiar to you as, as you hear conversations around gender and sexuality in our world today. The Yogyakarta Principles, which was an important document from 2006 around a lot of this stuff, said that one's self-defined and self-determined sexual orientation and gender identity is one of the most basic aspects of their personal freedom. So if you're going to be truly free, you need to be able to express uh, yourself sexually, for example. That's huge in our culture. This is what freedom means. Freedom is autonomy. It's independence. It's nonconformity. It's the, it's the ability to express yourself however you want to. This is the thing that you need. And so any, any force that would stand against that, like God, the Bible, church, those things need to be resisted. They need to be rejected. The uh, one, one uh, current scholar who writes about critical theory and advocates for it, uh, I was reading his introduction to critical theory, and he said that individual autonomy still remains threatened by religion. We still haven't got rid of that religion thing. It's still keeping people away from that. He's saying, right, that's still the thing that's keeping people from this. The, the only kind of institutions or authorities that are legitimate these days are things like uh, progressive liberal governments or academic institutions that empower people, that enable people to express themselves. That's, that's when you're legitimate. Otherwise, you've, you've got to be resisted. So that's kind of, that's, that's the world we live in. And because we're talking about relationships, let's look at what this how this impacts uh, marriage and, and the place of family in our culture. 
If you look up, if you Google decline of marriage, you will get one article after the next, after the next, talking about how the marriage rate in our uh, culture has fallen dramatically. Way less people are getting married. And when they are getting married, they're getting married a lot older. And there are a number of reasons for that. But I think, I think one of the reasons for that is because people see marriage rightfully as being a relationship that carries certain expectations. There is an expectation that you're going to conform to monogamy, that you need to support and care for this other person. It's, a, it's an institution that is kind of greater than yourself, that is bigger than yourself, but that sounds to people a little bit like oppression, right? Especially given the suffocating thought that it might be for life. That maybe this thing is supposed to be for life that starts to feel really oppressive, which is the thing that we've been told that we're supposed to resist. And child, uh, childbearing is, is similar here. The birth rate in Western culture also has fallen off a cliff. Less people are having kids. The ones who have kids are having less of them because, again, kids are seen rightfully as, uh, as, as a responsibility. There's an obligation there that is beyond yourself. It's why we've got this fever-pitched battle in our culture around reproductive freedom, the freedom to have an abortion if you're pregnant. It all kind of comes back to, uh, to, to this. So, so many of the movements in our culture kind of come back to this. I'm just, what I'm saying is that in a culture that idolizes individual autonomy, it makes sense that marriage and, and family is going to become less and less common and, 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 and less desired. So many of these movements in our culture kind of come back to this. Black Lives Matter, for example, back in 2020, they scrubbed this from their website in 2020 when things went a little bit crazy. But until then, they had on their website, one of their missions was to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement, which is a bit of a mouthful. But, but you might ask, what does racial justice have to do with disrupting the nuclear family. And it comes back, it comes back again to this, this uh, desire for freedom and this concern about oppression, that any and every form of oppression is to be resisted and disrupted. So with all of that cheery stuff out of the way, shall we talk about what the Bible says about, about this? See, this, is, this has, had massive, has had a massive impact on relationships in the 21st century, this worldview. So let's talk about a different way of seeing the world. We're going to do that from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is addressing one of many issues in the, in the church in Corinth. This issue in 1 Corinthians 9 is that there were people in the Corinthian church who were asserting their right to go to the idol temples in Corinth and eat the feasts that were happening there. These temples, they were not just worship centers. They were like, kind of like community centers in the first century world. There were places where you would come together, you would eat, you would celebrate things, you would network with other people. But it wasn't a community center in that you could just, it's, it's like some neutral space. You would eat the meals in honor of the God that the temple was built for. You would offer the food first as a sacrifice to these gods. And, and the feasts would often devolve into debauchery and sexual immorality and so a lot of things that just didn't really jive with, uh, with Christian faith. But these Corinthian Christians were like, well, we're going to miss out if we don't go. 
We're gonna, we're gonna miss out on an opportunity to build up our social credibility. So they said, we have the right to do this. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul even quotes one of their lines, I have the right to do anything, which is kind of like the, the mindset in our culture as well. You know, if, if, there's, if I wanna do a thing and I'm technically allowed to do the thing, then I'm gonna do the thing, right? That's how, that's how people think in our world today. That's kind of how the Corinthians were thinking. And so Paul addresses this issue in three chapters. Chapter eight, he kind of says, look, even if you did have the right and the freedom to go to the temple, it's gonna have a big impact on other believers who maybe don't have the same confidence that you do. Maybe they're gonna get sucked back into idolatry. And so out of concern for them, you shouldn't go. But then in chapter 10, he says, even if you, even, even besides that, you are participating with idolatry when you go, so it should be off limits. But in chapter 9, right in the middle, he doesn't talk so much about the feasting and the, and the idols and everything like that. He more just focuses on this overarching topic of freedom and how our freedom impacts other people. And so he kind of gives his life as, as an example. So right at the beginning of, of chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 9 is where you're going to be. Right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 9, he asks, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? The answer to all those questions would be, yes, good. That was the interactive part of this morning. You did, three of you did it. It was great. Yes, the answer is yes, that is, that's true of who Paul was. And what Paul is saying is, look, if you Corinthians think that you've got liberty and knowledge and this freedom, what about me? I brought you into this world. Maybe not, but I brought you into the kingdom. And I, I'm an apostle, Paul says. And so whatever freedom you think you have, I, I've, I've got that too. He expands on this in verses four to six. He says, don't we, apostles, have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Cephas is, is another name for uh, Peter. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? So Paul is focused here on, on two freedoms especially. Uh, one is the freedom to get married. This is not Roman Catholicism here. Apostles were free to, to be married, to have a spouse who would support them, who would travel with them. If Paul, you know, had found that one extremely unique woman in the world who had been willing to marry him, I think he would have been a very difficult person to be married to. Wouldn't you, don't you think? I think so. If he had found somebody, he's saying, look, I could, I could get married. That's what he's saying, right? I have, I have the right. I have the, I have the freedom as an apostle. And then the other freedom that he says he could have is the freedom to make a living from the gospel. That in teaching and preaching about Jesus, he could earn financial support for that. He actually says in verse 14 that the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So these rights and these freedoms, they're, they're actually good things. Paul's saying, look, look, they're not, they're not bad things. There's nothing unspiritual about getting married or making money from preaching the gospel. These are freedoms that are totally available to him. But this is what he says he's done with these freedoms in verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast 
since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Verse, verse 12, he says it more succinctly. He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I didn't use these rights that were available to me. And if we look at those, those two freedoms, especially that we talked about, we'll talk about why he laid those down. So first, the marriage thing. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about how as a single man, he is able to give himself unreservedly to the work of the kingdom of God. He says that a, a, married, a married man or a married woman, they necessarily have obligations. There, there's an expectation that they are going to care for their spouse. Paul says, look, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that as a single man, he is able to have undivided interest in preaching the gospel. He is able to go from city to city, planting churches, getting thrown into prison. That's not something that wives are usually super excited about. Not that I have personal experience with that. Uh, but, but Paul's able to do that, right? He's able to endure all kinds of things. And there's, there's not a wife who's worried about him, you know, like anxious about this or anything like that. He's got, this, he's got this, this freedom because of that. Which, by the way, is such a different motivation for singleness, isn't it? And, and, and I, I say this, and, and I, I, wanna, I just want to acknowledge that there are many people, some here, who are single, and, and, and it's not something they feel called to or gifted for. It's, in fact, a, a source of pain and, and struggle with the Lord. That's, that's, not, that's not the contrast we're making here. The contrast is with people in our culture, kind of the Seinfeld mentality of, I, I, I want to be single because I want to be unattached. I want to, I want to live a life of pleasure on my own terms. I don't want to have to consider anybody else. That kind of mindset is so different from Paul's motivation for singleness because he's, he's saying, no, there's, there's something I'm bound to that's bigger than myself. That's the reason why he's chosen to lay down this freedom to be married. The, the freedom that gets more more airtime here, though, is the freedom to make a living from the gospel. And Paul actually did do this at some points. He actually did receive financial support from churches. Even in Corinth, that happened. So in Acts chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth, and at first he's supporting himself by working a trade. He's, he's a tent maker. So that's what he's doing. And then in the off hours, he's preaching, he's teaching, helping people come to faith in Jesus. But when Silas and Timothy, two of his assistants, when they come from Macedonia, which is a region to the north, from cities like Thessalonica and Philippi, they bring, they bring some financial gifts from those churches. And when Paul receives that, now he's able to give himself fully to the work of the Lord in Corinth, to, to the gospel ministry. But Paul never took money from the Corinthians while in Corinth. And one of the reasons for this probably was this whole dynamic in Greco-Roman society called the patron-client relationship. So you'd have a patron who would be a wealthy individual and that person would, would sponsor somebody else. So that that person in turn would give the patron their loyalty and support them in, in different ways. 
So you might have a patron that supported an artist and the artist now, so he's, he's kind of paying the, the bills for the artist and the artist now is expected to dedicate their works to the patron, maybe conform their art to the tastes of the patron, that kind of thing. And this is exactly the kind of dynamic that Paul wants to avoid. He is passionately against being in a situation where people could say to him, hey, Paul, I'm paying your bills, man. So you better stop preaching on that controversial topic. And in fact, you better start mentioning more often how I'm the number one Christian around. I'd like to hear my name three times every time you preach. You know, that's my expectation or I'm cutting you off. He wants to avoid that at all costs. And so he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want anybody saying, you know, Paul only preaches because I pay him to. He wants to be free of that. That's why he says, I, I want to present the gospel free of charge. I don't want anybody to be confused about my motivations in doing this. And that's why Paul has, has given up that freedom, that right, that liberty to make his living from the gospel in, in that way. Now that might make it sound like Paul is one of these 21st century autonomous individuals who just wants total freedom from everybody else, just wants to do his own thing. But Paul is definitely not that, and we see that from the next verses. So verse 19, Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. It's about to get a little confusing, just to warn you. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. You got that? Good. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So here's Paul, again, asserting his freedom. He's going, I don't belong to anybody. I'm not under anybody's thumb. But he says, I have freely and willingly become a slave to everyone. I, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Now that doesn't sound very appealing either, does it? It makes it sound a little bit like Paul is one of those social chameleons who doesn't really have any real convictions, but just shifts and changes depending on the circumstances he's in. You've maybe known people like this. I feel like this is a, a, a common high school stereotype, right? Like I feel like high school, like teen movie plot device You've got two kids that grow up, they're friends, and then one of them becomes cool, and one of them becomes nerdy, and when they like see each other in private, they still like hang out, but then in public, like the cool one pretends like the, the, the nerdy one doesn't exist, right? Like you've seen that movie. I don't know what movie it is, but you've seen that, right? Is, is that what Paul is? Is Paul like some teenage girl from some chick flick? <laughs> Obviously, I'm not gonna say yes. <laughs> Obviously, I, no, I don't think that's what Paul is like. And we, and we see what Paul means in a couple of passages. So he says to the, you know, kind of to, the, to those, to the, to the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile, something along those lines. He talks about those not under the law. And we see that in chapter 10. So in chapter 10, Paul says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience, 
This is something that Paul never would have done before. In his former life as a Pharisee, a Jewish rabbi, he never would have gone into the home of a Gentile. Because you don't know, like, is this food unclean? Is it non-kosher? Has it been sacrificed to idols? Who knows what else is going on in a Gentile household? You just stay far away from that. And now Paul says, look, if, if someone invites you into their home, go, go. Go and eat. Go and have conversation. Now, he does say in that same passage that if they tell you that the food has been sacrificed to idols, if they're like, hey, I just offered this to Apollo, enjoy. Now, now you've got a problem. Now you probably say, no, I'm sorry, I can't eat that. But don't, don't even ask the question. They invite you over, eat the food. Don't ask any questions. Just, just use this as an opportunity, in other words, to make Jesus known. So that's what he does in a Gentile home. But then with the Jews, he'll, he'll be considered of their particular kind of stumbling blocks and issues. So we, we saw this in Acts chapter 16, how Timothy is this young and upcoming leader and evangelist. And Paul wants to take him with him on his missionary travels. Uh, but there's a problem because Timothy is, uh, well, his, his mother's Jewish, his father's Greek. And so he's technically in the eyes of Jews, he, he's a Jew, but he's not circumcised. And Paul knows if he takes Timothy and they're preaching to Jews and they find out, they know that Timothy isn't circumcised, it's a closed door. They're not gonna be able to hear anything that Paul or Timothy say. They're just gonna, it's, that's it. It's just like, no way. He's an uncircumcised Jew. It's, it, we're not, it's not even, we're not, it's not a conversation. And so Paul basically tells Timothy, if you wanna come along with me, buddy, you have to, you're gonna have to undergo the snips. <laughs> um, and this is not something that Paul ever advocated for generally. There's a whole letter, the letter of Galatians, where he says, like, don't get circumcised if you think that's going to save you. Like, don't go anywhere near that. But in this circumstance, he advocates for it for Timothy. Why? He says it for the sake of the gospel so that he can share in its blessings. For, for Paul, this is what he was all about. His question was never, how can I assert my rights and freedoms? His question was always, what will enable me to make Jesus known? What will enable me to serve others in Jesus' name? This is what Paul was passionate about. So on, on the one hand, we've got, we've got Paul who wants to be not under anybody's thumb, he's free. But on the other hand, he kind of makes himself a servant of others. He kind of adapts himself in some ways. He, he'll, he'll accommodate on secondary issues so that people can hear the primary thing, right? So he's got both of these dynamics going on. How does this come together? Let's look at the next section, last section of, of chapter nine. Paul says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize." We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but it's Paul's sports analogy. I love it, as you are not surprised. Uh, I, lo I love sports. When I was a kid growing up, I did not dream of doing this. I was not dreaming of preaching sermons. I was dreaming of hitting home runs, scoring goals, 
catching touchdowns, all that stuff. Actually, basketball didn't become a love until later on. Baseball was kind of my first sports love. So I remember being six years old and playing baseball and in one game hitting a few home runs, not because I hit it over the fence, but because when you're six years old and you're playing baseball, if you hit it past the infield and you just keep running, six-year-olds don't know how to throw or catch. And so you'll get a home run every time. Six-year-old baseball is easy to dominate, guys. You should all try it. It's great. It's a lot of fun. So, uh, so the next day at school, me and some friends were like, well, this is great. Like, we're obviously going to become professional baseball players. Uh, and so we started practicing our autographs. And I just remember, as a six-year-old, the next day, just on a page, just writing like autograph after autograph, just practicing, trying to get it down. Because we're like, this is, we're going to need this. Like, this is, this is going to come in handy later on in life. And I, I, I could be remembering this wrong. Like I, could be to- like, I might be making this up, but I think I remember this. That, that some of our other classmates were like, they had heard about our majestic exploits from the day before. And I think, I think somebody actually paid me, like maybe a dime or something for, for some of my autographs. So there could still be a Manitoban out there holding on to this page of autographs, still hoping that Craig Thiessen might make it to the big leagues. And you know, this, this, these autographs might actually be worth some money one of these days. Uh, so that didn't happen. I don't know if you realize that. It didn't, that didn't end up happening. I didn't make it to the big leagues. Uh, for a few reasons, I could blame the fact that there was snow on the ground for 10 months a year in Manitoba, making baseball training a little bit difficult. We could, uh, we could blame the fact that I probably just lacked natural skill and ability. But I, I think one, one significant reason was because I simply lacked the discipline required to actually become a professional athlete, especially when you're a skinny little white boy. It's going to require a lot of discipline and, uh, and sacrifice to be able to get there. And I just, I, just, I just didn't do that. And that's Paul's point here. You look at these successful athletes and the, and the glory and the fame and, and their abilities, and you think, wow, look at that. But behind the scenes is this life of immense discipline where you are saying no to so many things so you can say yes to the one thing. You know, an, an athlete is technically free to eat Reese Puffs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner all day, every day. An athlete is free, technically, to smoke and drink and go to bed late and play video games constantly. Like, like they're free to do things like that. But the champions, they don't. They're, they're not going to do that. If, if you want to win the crown, if, if you want to be on top, it's going to require saying no to a lot of things that you could do in order to be able to do that one thing you're called to do, to win the crown. And this is Paul's point. This, this kind of brings it all together here in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is saying there are freedoms that you have in your life, but they are to be sacrificed or utilized so far as they enable you to win the prize, which Paul identifies as the blessings of the gospel. Whatever will bring you nearer to Jesus and enable you to make him known. That's our church's vision statement, to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. Whatever enables you to do that, whatever freedoms you utilize to be able to do that, that's what you do. Whatever freedoms you have to sacrifice to make that happen, you sacrifice them because that's what it's about. So Paul would say to the Corinthians, look, this is how I view things. It's how you should view things too. You shouldn't be going to the temple. You shouldn't be participating in those feasts. You should lay down whatever right or privilege you think you have for that for the cause of making Jesus known. And it might look different for us 
today. As far as I know, it's not like an ethical dilemma a lot of us are facing, but the principle is the same. In chapter 10, Paul says, this is kind of the conclusion to his whole discussion, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. It's Paul's whole thing. I'm not seeking my own good. I want to live in such a way that people see Jesus and come to faith in him. That's what it's about. And can I just say again how radically countercultural that is? Not just in Paul's day in the first century, not just in Corinth, but today in our culture, how different that is. We live in this culture, as we said, that has idolized individual autonomy, that has idolized the expressive individual. We live in perhaps the most individualistic society this world has ever seen. We live in a world where people are isolated from each other, stuck in their worlds of smartphones and, and AirPods, and, and people are generally okay with this, generally okay with not being in community. There was a Wall Street Journal uh, survey that was published last month that uh, looked at the, the values of Americans over the years. They found that in the last 25 years, the percentage of Americans who believe that community engagement, community involvement is important dropped from 47% to 27%. Only 27% of Americans right now think that involvement in community is an important value. I mean, we live in a world where people want the benefits of relationships without the discipline or the sacrifice to personal freedoms that are required for that. I saw a hilarious video this past week of a celebrity who wanted to see if her dogs would recognize her on the trail. You know, so she's got this dog walker and I think probably like this dog walker spends a lot of time with the dogs. And so uh, this, this celebrity like just sitting on a bench on the trail and her dog walker and the dogs walk by and they pay zero attention to her. She's like a little discouraged about this. So she decides she'll try again. She, she, another part of the trail, she walks right past them. The dogs don't acknowledge her existence. You know, the, her scent means nothing to them. And she's just dismayed. She can't believe it. How could this happen? Now, I could be totally wrong. Okay, I could be, maybe she spends a lot of time with her dogs. Maybe her dogs are just kind of dumb. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but, but to me, it might be an illustration of the way so many people want the benefits of relationships without the sacrifice, without the time, without the discipline that's actually required to cultivate those. Paul's perspective on relationships. And this kingdom of God mindset is so, so different. Because the king, if, 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 the, if the kingdom of God mindset of relationships, if you have that, you don't ask, how can I be free of responsibility? How can I make sure that I get what's coming to me? How can I use the relationships with people in my life to further my own status, my own cause, my own whatever? In the kingdom of God, you don't ask those questions. In the kingdom of God, you ask, how can I serve others? How can I use the freedoms that are available to me 
to make Jesus known? How can I be used by God in a way that builds them up in faith in Jesus? It's not about individuality. It's not about freedom uh, in, in terms of freedom from responsibility. It's not about independence. It's about saying to God, here's my life. Take it, use it as much as you want in the lives of others for your kingdom's cause. Now the question is, how did Paul come to this? How did he come to this radically different perspective on relationships? We're going to close with this. Two, two things pretty quickly. The first reason is because of who Paul was. So that question, how do I get what I am entitled to? How do I make sure I get what I deserve? I think Paul would say to that, thank God. Seriously, thank God that you don't get what you deserve. Because in Paul's perspective... What all of us deserve, what we're entitled to, is condemnation. All, all of humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, so what, what justice would mean is us being stuck in the self-destructive misery of sinful thoughts and actions and attitudes. That's what we would deserve, Paul knew this firsthand because he had been a persecutor of the church. He had actively worked against Jesus, trying to throw his people into prison, breathing out passionate and angry threats against Christians. That had been his past. Paul even describes himself in one letter as the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. But something had happened to change all that. He had received grace. He received precisely what he didn't deserve. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 15, for I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Everything Paul had was grace. By grace, he was now a child of God, filled by the Holy Spirit, forgiven and redeemed, not because of what he had done, but because of what Jesus had done. By grace, he had, he had received a freedom, a real and eternal freedom, a freedom from the need to save himself, to justify himself, a freedom from the power of sin, a freedom from the fear of death. And this freedom that Jesus had won for him just caused all of those other human freedoms that the Corinthians were so worked up about and so obsessed about. It just caused all of those to pale in comparison because of that one ultimate freedom that he had received in Jesus. So Paul thought about relationships this way, not, not just because of, of who he was, that, that's part of it, because of who he was, but also because of who Jesus is. At the very core of the gospel is this conviction that Jesus left the glories of heaven to take on flesh, to enter into our world for our sake. We're going to go outside of 1 Corinthians for a moment here and go to the famous passage in Philippians 2 where Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus was in very nature, is in very nature God. And he voluntarily, freely laid down the glories of heaven, emptied himself, became a servant, even went to death on a cross. And why did he do that? He did that for you. And he did it for me. He did it out of his great love for us. He did it to reconcile us to God. He did it because on our own, we were headed to condemnation and he pulled us up. He set us free. He freely laid down his liberties in order to win that freedom for us. And so in your lives, in your relationships, can I just invite you to repent of those old ways that enthrone autonomy, that enthrone this independence, this idea that I need to get what I deserve, that I need to express myself how I want, no matter how it affects other people. I just encourage you, repent of that. Lay that down. Lay down that whole old way of looking at things and learn from Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look, look at his grace that he has given you. Look at who he has made you to be. Look at that ultimate and eternal freedom he has won for you at the cross and in the empty grave. You are called to make him known. You are called to serve others in Jesus' name. You are called a child of God, a member of his household, a citizen of the kingdom. You're not lacking in anything in the kingdom of God. So receive that grace and make him known with all the freedoms that are available to you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I know that, that some of this should should strike us deeply. Because this, this culture, this world, this is the water that we swim in, it's the air that we breathe. Some of us have breathed in a lot of it. And we have lived in ways that have not been consistent with your kingdom, but instead have been obsessed with our own rights and liberties and entitlements and so on. And I pray God that here and now that you would give us the strength to lay that down to lay it down and just to bask in your grace, your mercy to us, and to begin to live into the calling you have for us, which is not to extend our own status, but to extend your kingdom. Not to serve our own cause, but to serve your cause. To not treat other people as just a means to our own end, but to love others genuinely so that they would know you. Come, Holy Spirit, set us free, Lord, from the chains of this, this world's view of relationships and set us free, Lord, to live in the kingdom of wholeness, of healing, of reconciliation, of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. 
We believe that He is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through Him. May you know Him more and make Him known today. We'd love to hear from you.